welcome to Organized Crime and Punishment, the best spot in town to hang out and talk about history and crime, with your hosts, Steve and Mustache Chris. Hey guys, welcome back to Organized Crime and Punishment. On today's episode, Mustache Chris and I are going to be diving even deeper into Murder, Inc. by exploring some of the key characters who are really the street-level guys, the muscle, you might say, of the organization. In the previous episode, we explored Jacob Shapiro and Lepke Bulkhalter, who made up sort of a higher under the management of Murder, Inc., and their rise to power in the labor slugger wars. Abe Rellis, Harry Strauss, and many more are going to get explored in this episode, and we're going to see how basically three separate gangs came together as a marriage of convenience and formed what was the most ruthless killing machine that organized crime ever produced in North America. Each of these stories on Murder, Inc. are really interesting on their own, and they're even more awesome when you put them all together, so I highly suggest if people like what they hear today, today go back and listen to episode one and two and then keep out uh keep your eyes out because we'll have a couple of more episodes on murder inc and also check out all of our other episodes as well too because i think you'll see that a lot of the things that we're talking about with murder inc you'll get a lot more out of it if you listen to uh some of our earlier episodes on the five families etc so where do you think we should start off today uh chris how about abe Rellis, one of uh brownsville's finest uh can you tell us about abe and then maybe how he fits in with some of the other pieces of the murder inc puzzle yeah abe Rellis is uh, i'm not sure if he's like really uh the average person would know who Abe Rellis is. I'm sure people who studied a bit of mob history would probably know who Abe Rellis is. Um, he's, I mean, I'm not giving anything away. He ends up becoming uh, probably one of the greatest informants in, in mob history. But at this point, uh, he's not. Uh, yeah, Abe Rellis was born to uh, Austrian Jewish immigrants in Brownsville on May 10th, 1906. Uh, his father, like he worked in the uh, garment industry, but uh, when the depression hit, um, it when the depression hit, he lost his job, obviously. And I write, apparently, he was selling like uh, knish on the streets. What what is knish exactly again? It's like a potato kind of ball. Uh, what I'm thinking is that it's probably it shows you that working in the garment. Uh, factory wasn't the greatest job but there was definitely worse jobs out there yeah uh, um yeah he was like selling knishes on the street to like you know make basically make ends meet like you know like am i gonna eat today type thing right how many how many of these things did i sell um yeah and abe would end up he would go to school until about the eighth grade and but he dropped out obviously it wasn't for him um Pretty typical kind of upbringing for somebody during somebody living in Brownsville at the time. We explored it on their previous episodes, just how I mean, Brownsville probably was one of the worst places in the world from everything that I've read. And uh, it was like a breeding ground for these uh, type of characters that uh, we're going to be getting more into. When he dropped out of school, it was like kind of uh, this is when he met up with his friend uh, uh, Martin Goldstein. Um 
had a nickname, Bugsy Goldstein. When um, we talked about it on the previous episode too, where Bugsy was just kind of a term. I thought I initially thought it was just for Bugsy Siegel, but apparently there was quite a few mobsters that had the term Bugsy. Apparently he, apparently the way you spelled it, uh, you spell it for him, it's with like two G's instead of one. I guess that was for him, make him stand out. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, Bugsy Goldstein's pretty interesting. Apparently a lot of like the early mob movies, like the old kind of black and white ones with the Steve, was it Cagney? And um, apparently they, a lot of the actors uh, kind of used Martin uh, Goldstein as like a template uh, for their characters or how they would perform being an actor uh perform being a gangster in their performances i thought that was pretty interesting when i was reading yeah. it, but i learned that and um i believe it was what's the book that i read uh tough jews by robert uh rob cohen it's a very good book actually it explores all about uh murder inc and the jewish mafia in and around this time um yeah and then it abe's like first jail sentence actually believe it or not was like stealing two dollars worth of gum you got sent to jail for that at quite a young age so now we move on to the shapiro brothers and how uh they play into the game of the formation of murder inc yeah i don't think uh i i almost guarantee that nobody's probably ever heard of the shapiro brothers i know i hadn't heard about them until uh i started researching murder inc and didn't quite realize they play like a really important uh part in this entire thing in a lot of ways they kind of helped create murdering i mean they obviously didn't mean to do that but they they did yeah the shapiro brothers were meyer uh irving irving and uh willie they ran much of the the brownsville neighborhood like they uh they did like prostitution uh, a lot of booze a lot of um um typical loan shark like all the typical like mafia um mainstays that you would think uh prostitution was actually was quite big actually apparently like if um husbands would like lend like borrow money from the shapiro brothers and couldn't pay it back they would like get their wives to start prostituting stuff like that <laughs> like these are wow. not yeah and that's how they that's how basically they you know the couple would pay back their debt like it's just really really horrible type of stuff that was going on in brownsville at the time um yeah the shapiro brothers you know they saw like the talent and somebody like a relis and uh 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 goldstein so they started working for them at quite a young age uh basically doing kind of like the grunt work you know collecting the money doing petty crimes maybe you know small time b and e's um things of that nature you know like typical like if you were working at a factory, you start, you know, stocking the shelves and then you kind of slowly move your way up uh, in the factory. But, you know, this is organized crime. So there's a uh, different types of hazards uh, <laughs> as you're moving up uh, your way up the company. Uh, yeah, A would end up getting caught um, with the crime and he got ended up getting sentenced to uh, two years in uh, juvie, uh, like juvenile uh, prison. And the Shapiro brothers failed to uh, help him at all. Typically, how this would work with these types of gangs at this time is you would do the crimes, then you you get paid, but then like a certain amount of money would go in a pot that was used to like say pay cops off or pay off lawyers or pay off judges. So if you did get caught, maybe the the sentence wouldn't be uh, so long, or you probably could get right get off uh scot-free right but the shapiro brothers didn't do any of this for abe and 
basically Abe came to the conclusion that he was going to get revenge against the Shapiro brothers for treating him so poorly. And he also thought that he could do what the Shapiro brothers were doing in Brownsville, but better. It's really interesting that um, these Shapiro brothers, I think of it, all the people we've talked about, I mean, really in this whole episode, there's going to be a lot of characters who I think most people would, it would not be their a name brand mafiosi there there's a couple who might be more familiar but man these guys sound like they should everybody should know this story i was blown away when i read it i was like like how have they not made a movie about this or something you know like it seems tailored like this whole conflict you don't even have to include murder inc we're gonna get into it a little bit more i'm like this is mafia movie heaven like i don't why hasn't this been done yet i guess i i can't give you a good explanation why not i I don't know. People who just people don't want to put money into type of projects like this nowadays. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, or maybe it just never. I mean, it is such the really the scummier part. Like the, it's really hard to put a shine on some of these people. And I think as the more we learn about Murder Inc., it's very difficult to find anything redeeming in a lot of these characters uh, and. Speaking of Rellis and Shapiro, I think that in a way it's maybe Rellis was expecting too much honor among thieves. But anyways, clearly there is an honor among thieves. So how does this conflict between Rellis and Shapiro, the Shapiro brothers develop? And, you know, what kind of what does the conflict lead to? They, they both came to the conclusion and uh, Goldstein and uh, Abe Rellis that um they wanted revenge against the Shapiro brothers. They also knew that they, like them alone, weren't going to be able to do it. Like the Shapiro brothers were really no joke, right? Like these guys were the top dogs in that neighborhood. Um, yeah, initially, like they were first, they like started like opening up um, slot machines in uh, the Shapiro's neighborhood with the backing of, uh, believe it or not, I guess Meyer Lansky took a liking to Abe and Goldstein and. Uh, Meyer was looking into he wanted to like expand his uh his like gambling business into some of the poorer neighborhoods in New York. Um and uh, the connection like be- between like Abe Rellis and I guess this name it's I don't know, it's not really important to the story, but George uh DeFeo, he was like the Italian guy and he was like the connection between um he was like the goal go between guy. We're gonna run into a lot of the, these go-between guys as we go through this episode between uh, Meyer Lansky and Abe and uh, Goldstein. And, yeah, and as soon as they set up these uh, slot machines, they, they actually initially, they were thriving. They were rivaling the Shapiro brothers, and then the Shapiro brothers said, like, well, we got to put an end to this right now, right? Because this, this was their biggest moneymaker. For a lot of these mob guys, these slot machines were really their biggest moneymaker because it was just consistent work it was just consistent money coming in right uh like all the bodegas and everything everybody had slot machines and they're it's crazy to think because they they were illegal um to have but every store had these slot machines you know you think that the cops would just go in there and start taking them out there was a mayor in new york at one time that like apparently collected hundreds of these slot machines and just tossed them in the middle of the ocean or something <laughs> in the middle of the lake or something like that um Thinking like, yeah, we'll, we'll just collect them all and just get rid of them. I think we touched on that in the, when we talked about Frank Costello on one of the five family episodes for a bit. So I think we should do down the road. Maybe we'll talk about that, Mary, because it's a pretty funny story. Um, 
So yeah, and um, one night apparently Abe Ellis and Goldstein and DeFeo they got some inside information that the the Shapiro brothers were leaving somewhere, uh, but it turned out the uh, turned out the inside information wasn't uh, uh, was like a fool's gold basically, and um, the Shapiro brothers uh, ambushed them. Uh, didn't end up killing any of them, but they—I believe—he, they, they all got wounded. Uh, but while this was going on, um, Meyer Shapiro actually kidnapped uh, Abe's uh, girlfriend, and uh, you know would keep this family friendly. So um, you know did some things to her that he uh, shouldn't have done, uh, and which further angered Abrellis, obviously, right? And now the conflict went from, like, oh, you didn't visit to me in jail to, like, you're doing this. Um, so it just ratcheted up even more. Now, at this point, we've introduced the Shapiro brothers, we've introduced Abrellis, and we're going to introduce a couple other key players. And I know it can be tough to keep track of all these names in an audio format, but really just sit back and enjoy the enjoy the ride. Uh, it will really help to at least be introduced to all of these guys, even if you don't remember every detail about them. They all play their own interesting role in the development and the legacy of Murder, Inc. And even some of these guys have two names that are distinctly different for one guy. So don't get uh don't worry about keeping track of all these names but our next name of one person who had two names harry strauss or as he was also known as pittsburgh phil what's his story yeah like i mentioned earlier uh the the uh abe Rellis and goldstein knew they kind of couldn't take on the shapiro brothers themselves and they they kind of did by just like opening up the slot machines but after we had just talked about earlier i mean it became really crystal clear like you know they were almost killed they they started to have to recruit people harry strauss was a guy uh he was born in 1905 in brooklyn new york um he like kind of he hung out with like goldstein and relis but he was i i I guess would consider kind of like a wild card in the sense of like, he didn't really work for anybody. He wasn't really attached to anybody. Um, yeah. Like he had this weird nickname, Pittsburgh Phil. And even the people have like studied this for a living. Don't really understand where the nickname Pittsburgh Phil came from. Cause from everything that they've read, he never actually visited Pittsburgh. So I, <laughs> I'm, I don't know. You guys can just make up, but there has to have been like some reason for it. It's just been lost through time, right? Like it just seems like an odd thing. Like your friend it must have been like an inside joke with friends or something. And yeah. then we just don't we don't know what the joke is, right? Um Yeah. So like uh Harry Strauss was was apparently was quite a tall man and he was kind of built like a football player. He was like a he was an like an attractive looking dude. I mean, you can look up pictures of this guy and you know, he's I don't know. He's not a bad looking guy, really. Um, I can see by the way he liked him. Um, yeah. And he's, uh, Pittsburgh Phil is like famous for potentially maybe being one of the most ruthless hitmen in the history of the mob, depending on who you talk to from everything that I have read. Like I've read people say he's probably killed up towards a hundred people. And I've seen some people put it up to 500 people. And, his kills weren't like just in New York, like he traveled all around the state. So all the different like families or different criminal organizations, like I said, he was kind of a freelance hitman. Um, 
would hire them to do jobs. They go, I need somebody to get taken out in Florida or I need somebody to get taken out in, you know, Cleveland or Detroit or wherever. Right. And he would do it. Um, as reading about uh, Harry Strauss, though, I just I kind of made this observation or I'm sure people are much more familiar with the the Iceman, Richard Kuklinski. And if you read Richard Kuklinski's story, it sounds kind of similar to Harry Strauss's story where Harry Strauss was hired from hired by all the different families to go around all the country to to take care of special jobs. This is exactly what Richard Kuklinski claims. It almost seems like, well... If Richard's making it all up, he kind of write about Pittsburgh Phil and used his story as kind of a template for his tall tales. I just thought that was an interesting observation. What do you think? Steve here. We are a member of the Parthenon Podcast Network, featuring great shows like James Early's Key Battles of American History podcast and many other great shows. Go over to ParthenonPodcast.com to learn more. And here is a quick word from our sponsors. Yeah, that would be a really cool thing if he did do that. Like the the real deal. Harry Strauss did the things that he that Richard the Iceman Kuklinski claimed to do. And uh, one of the things that I always come back to when I think about people like this who killed a hundred, maybe up to five hundred people, which is absolutely staggering and mind blowing. But you you got to think: Are these people? Is it? purely work for them or is there always a serial killer element to them because like you think about um if you want to take it like like to its extreme like the um some of the famous snipers in the wars yeah they're doing it for god and country and harry relis is doing it for money and for the the organization but what is going on in somebody's mind who can personally kill so many human beings there's got to be something else going on there and i'd love to see studies about it that's probably almost something that's so borderline on taboo that you really almost can't study it yeah, if I had to pick where some of these guys are like kind of straddle the line between like, is he just a really effective soldier or is he a serial killer? I would say everything that I read about Harry Strauss, he's just a straight up serial killer that was that that enjoyed really enjoyed what he did. Uh, you know, he was famous for tying people up. Uh, I'm not sure how to describe it. It was basically that he would tie them up like with their from their ankles and I would like go around their neck and then basically when they would move they would slowly kind of strangle um themselves apparently he quite enjoyed watching that i mean that's not you know what i mean that's not like it's oh really we're gonna take a guy out in the stuff. desert you know what i mean yeah. like we're gonna take a guy out in the desert because he you know he hasn't paid his big payment or something or you know he's gonna you know he's gonna rat to the cops let's just we got to get him out out of the picture you know or this that type of, you know, we'll get into it with some of the stuff with Murder, Inc., where a lot of these guys are, I do truly believe they weren't criminals. They, they a lot, some of these guys probably would have just been serial killers. Now, moving on, we get, enter a uh, Italian into the mix, Frank Abadondo. Uh, uh, what was Frank's pedigree and how does he start to fit in with this, at, at least at this point, predominantly Jewish gangsters? Frank, he didn't waste any time. Like he 
he was pretty much born to become a criminal, you know, and his in the like even in his teens, he was making money, like extorting businesses and threatening to torch them down. I think he actually did burn down a couple of businesses just to show he wasn't joking around. He was a teenager doing this, you know. You read about like what's going on in Brownsville and in and around this area at this time, it still blows my mind. It reads something you mentioned Mogadishu, it reads kind of like that. Where, you know, they're just firefights in the streets, people are just burning down stores. Uh um, <laughs> you know, like stuff you read about happening, happening in the third world countries, really, right? Um, yeah, he would end up joining uh, a gang, like I pointed out, that predominantly worked in the, the Ocean Hills section of New York uh, and quickly became a lieutenant of a gentleman named uh, Harry Myone, who we're going to get into in a little bit. Yeah, and like he helped like working, he helped like organize like gambling and racket, like racketeering schemes, loan sharking. And, you know, he became a pretty proficient hitman himself. Um, that's why he was a lieutenant, right? He kind of ran like the day to day operations of this gang. I mean, Harry wasn't, he wasn't like a hands off boss or anything. He was like right in there too. He ended up getting arrested for, uh, beating up a police officer. Well, he ended up beating up like a police officer when he was quite quite young, and um, he ended up having to go to like reform school. And while he was at this uh, reform school, he got the nickname the Dasher because apparently, uh, because of his skill at sports, in particular baseball. And I was reading apparently, like if he had lived a different life or had gone down a different road, uh, uh, the people around him were fairly convinced that he could have played in the major leagues. Um. But obviously that didn't happen, right? Uh, he still stayed a criminal until the very end. Um, yeah, and Frank, he had a reputation for, I mean, this is kind of weird mentioned earlier about the more unsavory elements of organized crime and in particular Murder, Inc. There's really nothing glamorous about any of these guys, really. It's, they're all disgusting animals. Um, apparently Frank had a reputation of just prowling around the neighborhood and picking up you know there's no way to sugarcoat like like teenage girls and you know doing stuff that he shouldn't have been doing and he's a sexual predator yeah really that's at the end of the day was a sexual predator you know you guys can fill in the blanks yourselves right i'm not going to get into all the details or what have you like i i read about it so i mean you guys don't you can read about it if you want i just don't think it's necessary basically frank would take this information well at least this olive branch that abe and uh goldstein and strauss came up with like oh let's join gangs if we join our gangs together we can take on the shapiro brothers and we'll uh split it down the middle which is what frank does he does take it to uh uh harry happy my own which is a funny nickname that we'll get into in a little bit you know what i think is really interesting hearing about stories about like people like frank abadondo who beat up a police officer as a kid and you hear these stories like i mean now that would be virtually unheard of for somebody you know even in the roughest neighborhoods for a teenager to beat up a, a cop but i just thought of a story of a um old timer who lived in our neighborhood and he grew up in the I I'm, I don't think as early as the 20s, but definitely in the 30s. And in his high school, he was in a vocational program 
one of the teachers stole his tools and like that be something that's pretty unusual in this day and age that a teacher is going to go and steal a teenager's tools. And this, uh, this neighbor of mine who was old when I knew him, but back in his teenage, he beat up the teacher and took his tools back. (laughs) And I mean, I think you hear a lot of stories about there that I think things back then were just so much looser on stuff like that. I think, yeah, I think so, too. I think part of it was, I mean, cops literally walked the beat, too, at that time, right, where there was no, like, there was cop cars, and they obviously had cars, but a lot of it was cops just literally walking up and down the streets and taking, like you mentioned, like, reactive policing, like, oh, someone's getting robbed, we gotta do something about this, (laughs) you know, where nowadays, most people hardly ever see a, I don't know, maybe it's different than the States, but up here, like, you hardly ever... You never see cops walking the beat. Like, I never see a cop not in their car. Mm-hmm. And the only time I see them is because, I don't know, well, not me personally, but if you're, like, speeding or, you know, you didn't stop at a stop sign or, I don't know, stuff like that, really. Um, where back then, you know, getting into, like, arguments with cops was probably, I don't know, probably a regular occurrence because you'd probably be the same cop in that neighborhood for, you know, months on end or even years. Um so like the, the, um, I don't know, like the Byzantine nature of the way the police force works now where you got through like walls and walls and walls to like interact with the cop, like just didn't exist then. It's like you interacted with these guys every day. They were kind of like just part of the neighborhood. That's my guess. I bet you too, like actually have being ready to fight and knock somebody uh, with your billy club like that was probably your training if you couldn't do that or if you got beat up too many times that's probably how you learn that policing wasn't for you you know what i mean like you were oh, I mean, you that, had to not fight. too long ago like not too long ago they used to have a height height and weight requirement to be a police officer i believe it was you had to be like over six foot and at least a buck 80 or a buck 85 or something like that um they've obviously dropped those requirements now but yeah they're for i assume for that exact reason you had to have been able to you know whack somebody with a billy bat and hold your own in street fight which is so it sounds so crazy now but i mean it does make sense to a degree um you know we talk about policing and stuff now and how you know cops are too quick to use their guns and what have you in certain situations or it would be nice to you know maybe having a guy that could hold this own in a street fight and has been in several street fights and doesn't panic under those type of circumstances i mean maybe sometimes it's that's not a bad thing to have a police officer well and like you said back then you're walking the beat and I think that in not all police departments did they necessarily carry guns, but they were carrying six shooters at the at the absolute most. And there's no calling for backup because you don't have a radio. You're going to if you're if a thug or a street tough like somebody like Frank Abadondo gets in your face, you better be ready to fight because it could be a fight for your life. It's I mean, it's so mind boggling different today i mean as much as you know police in certain circumstances if they're on the highway or something like that they may be in situations that are in uh, that grave but it's not a regular course of their duty like it would be somebody who is walking the beat in one of those neighborhoods like brownsville 
so then we get into this next guy that you kind of teased to us, Harry Happy, my own. And he's another really important part of the story. Yeah, Harry Happy, my own. He actually got the nickname with the, the happy was the fact that he was never happy. Apparently, he just had a permanent scowl on his face and he was like a he was a mean so and so. So people used to call him happy as like like a joke. Um, Harry Happy, my own. Like if uh, Pittsburgh Phil was um say like the most ruthless of them i mean my own wasn't that far off really he was he was quite a character which we'll get into um a little bit more in the the next episode but yeah yeah he was born in 1908 and the the actual gang was called the ocean hills uh hooligans that was the name of the gang that we had been talking about earlier um like i pointed out frank abadano became his uh understudy and yeah, we talked about um, how we got that nickname. And yeah, but uh, Harry um, had a close relationship with this guy named uh, Louis Compone, who actually wasn't, uh, he's not related to uh, related to Al Capone at all. Uh, Louis Capone was, uh, he, uh, um, I guess he was kind of, I guess you could describe him as like the go-between guy between, say, people like, uh, Harry, my own Harry Strauss and Abe Rellis, um, the go between to say the higher ups, like the people like Albert Anastasia, who were, you know, high up in the Italian uh, mafia at the time. Um, yeah, Lewis was born in uh, 1906. He was actually born in Naples. So he, he wasn't actually born in the States, unlike uh, some of these other guys. Uh, and he moved with his family to New York at a quite a young age. Um, Lewis ran like a, he ran like a cafe that served like coffees and sweets, but it was like a front. Like this cafe was almost kind of like used as a recruiting station to basically like recruit like potential hoodlums that they could use to commit various crimes or, you know, guys like, you know, I don't know, checking out prospects basically. Um, or I guess uh, I, some of these mafioso would be like, Oh, have you seen any, uh, you know, young kids come through the any potential talent coming through, and yeah, Lewis would kind of take them under their wing and then introduce them to like different people. Um, yeah, Lewis also he had like a pretty strong connections to. I think we'll end up doing a series on this the the Purple Gang in New York. I mean, sorry, in Detroit, uh, which was like a very powerful gang. The more like I kind of went down a little rabbit hole and was doing the research with this. Um, for this episode and i i was i was really shocked just how powerful these guys were um and lewis also like i said in the first episode like joe donis would be coming back into the picture lewis capone had strong ties to joe donis right and joe donis will end up becoming he'll have actually a fair amount to do with uh murder inc in a lot of ways in terms of coming up with contracts or uh for the hitman um and in a lot of ways, uh, Louis Capone was the guy that kind of kept the whole thing together, really, right? He was like the guy, like I said, he was the go-between guy. So like the guys on the streets would have their complaints and they'd go to Louis and Louis would, uh, you know, uh, give the information to the higher ups. And um, he's the one that kind of kept everybody, you know, cool. You know, because for the most part, we're dealing with stone cold lunatics, right? Lewis is the one that kind of um, made sure it all worked together. 
now you now that we've talked about this cast of main characters and we we see the organization that they're setting up that Relis and his gang, they want to start forming this organization where they'll be able to take on the Shapiro brothers and they build up something by getting these Italians involved. That is something, a gang that's something pretty serious to take on. Let's go and find out how does this now become a war between the Shapiro brothers and then this new, what did you call it? The combination and with Harry Strauss and my own and Avadondo. Yeah, that's what, yeah, that's what they called it was the combination. I mean, um, before they could get like official word uh, to take out this gang, Lewis had to take this information up to Albert Anastasia, uh, who's I'm pretty sure if people know kind of a passing history of the mob, they probably have heard of Albert Anastasia. So Albert Anastasia had to give his approval to take out the Shapiro brothers. And um, he wasn't very happy with the Shapiro brothers for a lot of different reasons. And he said, yeah, go ahead, you know, do it. Um, and even within this gang, they, they, they came to the agreement that they would split things evenly once they, uh, they took out the Shapiro brothers. So as you can see, there was, it wasn't just as simple as like, oh, we're just going to take out the Shapiro brothers because they have done that. Then they they would have pissed off Albert Anastasia, which would have pissed off the guys who had really a lot of power, like the Lucky Lucianos and the Meyer Lanskys and the uh, the National Crime Syndicate. Right. So you had to go through channels basically in a lot of ways, kind of like how a corporation works. You can't just go yell at the CEO. You got to go to the middle manager. And there's a, it seems frustrating at the time when you're dealing with stuff like that, but there's a reason why it it works the way it does. So you don't have like drastic changes quickly. And the people at the top know exactly what's going on, which is, I mean, they have to, it's really important. Um, Yeah. So between like the Shapiro's and the, the new gang, the combination, you know, they, um, had multiple hits on each other like a lot of failed a lot of the stuff was like taking uh place right in the streets right right out in the open which is i always thought was a little crazy but um after failing to kidnap uh irving shapiro a couple of times or abrellis was able to uh, catch him one day on the streets and apparently just beat the living crap out of him on the streets and then shot him right in the head uh just right on the open um so he got you know he's slowly getting his revenge against the shapiro brothers um and the other brother meyer shapiro yeah, I mean, he would uh abrellis would end up sneaking up on him on the streets i guess he saw him uh and uh yeah just shot him in the face uh multiple times uh right out in the open witnesses the whole nine yards um and the one brother william shapiro uh who i guess was fairly smart because he was able to run away from these guys for three years but eventually they did uh catch up to him and um they did kidnap him they dragged him dragged him to one of his gang one of their gang hideouts i guess when the heat was getting too rough this is a place where they would hide out um yeah, and uh, they would basically, yeah, they'd beat the crap out of him, like, to about the inch, um, to about when he was about to die, really. I I think they thought he did die. Um, and they stuffed him in a brown bag and threw him in the back of their trunk, and they were going out to go bury him to get rid of the body. And apparently, a ba- you know, like a pedestrian or some uh, somebody saw them. And they only kind of got the job halfway done, and they end up finding uh, um, 
William Shapiro and immediately when they they the the coroner and everything like did the autopsy they realized pretty quickly that just you know William hadn't passed by the time that they were burying him the they buried a guy alive which is I mean out of all the uh kind of stories that we're going to get to in this podcast like that's one of the more that one sticks with me the most it's the fact that they literally buried a guy alive i don't know if they meant to do it i don't think they did i think they thought he, he was done for but i mean that's what they did steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors we get through this just fascinating story of throughout these past several episodes of labor slugging and all these different things really come together. The Shapiro brothers who they set up an organization, but then the really the a more brutal organization comes in and takes what they've built and they're going to take it even a step further. It's pretty amazing how all these threads are starting to come together. And you see what I mean, guys, when I like, how has this not been made into a movie? Like, we just went through this. I'm like, this is the stuff that like mafia, like this would make like the perfect mafia movie, you know, like, and it's crazy that this story is not more well known because it really is like an insane war with like legitimately just insane people. And I just, it's crazy to me that this is not more well known. I mean, maybe... I've never heard anybody talk about the the Shapiro brothers and, you know, like the origins of Abe Rellis and Happy My Own and all these, like even Pittsburgh Phil, like Harry Strauss. I'm sure if you went on the street, like nobody knows who this guy is and he could have potentially been responsible for over 500 hits. It's it's nuts. I wonder, part of it is the the, the history is so complicated and I think that this should be a case study almost for people who are studying organized crime and uh, honestly how organizations develop this organic nature and uh, uh, it's top down, it's bottom up. Harry Rellis has a plan and he finds the right people who get him tied into a bigger organization. It's a fascinating story and I wonder if it maybe doesn't get as much coverage as other stories because there is a pretty complicated nature to it I think that's partially what it is where some of these a lot of these I don't say a lot but some of these mob stories you can kind of follow and it's it's got a relatively easy um, narrative to follow like John Gotti's rise and fall right it's pretty I mean anyone can kind of pick it up and they they get Added, where something like murder inc to like really kind of get what what is going on here it's it's really complicated because you need to know kind of the history of bronzeville and where did they got concept of like a, a you know a professional hit squad for the mob come about and you know how did even the gang form itself it's like all oh, that you know there was like this jewish faction there was this italian faction and then there's these in-between guys and then like there's albert anastasia who's over here but he's like at the very top and lepke was actually one of the biggest racketeers in the history of the united states but he's also running this and his buddy jacob shapiro is uh you know like it's there's so many names and there's so many moving parts where Quite literally, like I said, it's almost like three gangs coming together out of a marriage and convenience, really. And the really higher ups recognizing that 
hey, we got something here with all these guys. Like, they're all stone-cold psychopaths, and we could really use a cadre of stone-cold psychopaths to help us take care of business. Or if you look at something like Al Capone's rise in Chicago, he, you can, there's a lot of really messy details of how Capone gets established. But really, after the Valentine's Day massacre, it all falls into place. And it, it's a great, almost like John Wick story where certain people get killed and, you know, it, it flows along well where this year really, you have to make a, a case study of how organizations work and how different factions come together that are very dissimilar in a lot of ways, but then also have these certain connection points. And I think that in a way you have to examine it sort of in a way that we're doing it here. We're going to leave the narrative of Murder, Inc. right here for the day. But uh, Chris, you had some things, what we might call fun facts about Abe, uh, Abe Rellis and a few of the other people that really didn't fit into the narrative, but are worth uh, at least sharing here. When the commission kind of got started, when like the Castellari War was over and then like... Uh, um uh, Lucky Luciano was left in charge um, after he killed Maranzano. They had this big meeting in Chicago and Al Capone was there and it was all the heads of the five families and you know, like all the major heads of all the organized crime families across the states, really. Um, and like Al Capone was hosting it. Apparently, Abe Rellis was at this meeting. He made such a name for himself after he took out the Shapiro brothers. And I just got this image of this guy you know, coming up from the AHL and like, this is my first game at the NHL. I mean, because, you know, at the time, like, I'm sure most people, even at the time, like within organized crime, maybe they might have heard of Abe Rallis, but they probably, most of them probably, who's this guy? I have no idea who he is. I just got this image of him, like, you know, just like staring at Al Capone or something like that, or Lucky Luciano with like awe and as I score, I'm meeting Wayne Gretzky type thing. As you can tell, I'm Canadian because I'm using all these <laughs> hockey references. It really does show you, though, that how how he did something really special and to have a seat at that table is very impressive. And then you have a little something about Harry Strauss and his some of his uh, uh, psychopathic killing technique. Yeah, he he had this uh, apparently had this. He was so good with an ice pick. And I, I read this and I don't know how true it is, but I read it. So apparently he was able to ice pick somebody like was like right about like a behind the ear and it's the way it was described and he could do it so well that like like very little blood would like come out and like even the person would die instantly and like apparently like when doctors and stuff would show up to the crime scene and stuff like that like until they actually got the body back to the hospital they initially thought like oh this person died of natural causes um and it was like quick and quiet and apparently it was his it was his go-to to get a job done quick, which, I mean, brings up another kind of parallel to Richard Kuklinski in a lot of ways, because Richard talked about using arsenic, where he could just spray arsenic on, uh, like, food or, you know, in somebody's face, and he could just walk away, and then, like, the doctors would show up and be like, oh, he, they died of a heart attack, which is, you know, did you get that impression when I or was that cyanide? Was it, yeah, it was, sorry, it was cyanide. One thing that we probably, we won't get into a lot of the guts and the blood and the guts and the really gross uh, for lack of a better word details but i think there is something to say about some of the the methods that they came up with 
Now, finally, as one last little point we can bring up, it's really interesting to talk about the relationship between the Jewish and the Italian gangsters. And I mean, would you call this moment in this partnership kind of a progressive moment of inter-ethnic relations, even though we're talking about crime? Does crime bring uh, everybody together, basically? Yeah, I like, I don't know. Like, I've read this a lot where they're like, I don't know, ethnic relations were like way better within the mob than they were in like the rest of the country. And I mean, and so I guess you could argue in some ways, yes, that was true. Or, you know, in particular, you look at like Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky's relationship. But I mean, you guys just listened to the entire episode. Like I mean, these ethnic relationships kind of ran. And maybe they were better than the rest of the country in some ways, but they t- kind of ran along kind of typical lines, really. Like the Jewish guys kind of stuck with the Jewish guys and the Italian guys kind of stuck with the Italian guys. And yeah, sure, they worked together, but they like the Italian guys would have their intermediaries and then like the Jewish guys would have their go between guys, too. I mean, it was like a kind of like a meme that like the early mob was like was like a progressive force and ethnic relationships in the states and that's just not the impression i really get i mean you can't look at lucky luciano meyer lansky's relationship and say like oh yeah that was the norm it's like no that was the exception they worked together but they did stay separate in a lot of ways I think, too, that it was just really, as far as the Italian and the Jewish connection went in, particularly in New York City and those neighborhoods, it was just something that was very unusual in American history, where these two these two groups kind of did in a lot of ways meld together because they had they were living in very similar circumstances. They uh were working similar jobs. And I think that that's something that carried through history and not just with crime, but the, there was a lot of crossover, but I think to kind of, I don't even know what kind of lesson you want to pull from with the organized crime that Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano built this up. Like I, I, I don't even understand like what the meme of is progressive relationships. They were criminals working together. So really that we're going to leave it there today and we're going to get into a lot of exciting stuff where we're really going to get into the meat of Murder, Inc. Mustache Chris and I want to thank everybody for listening. The best thing you can do to help us out is to tell a friend about the show. Tell a couple of friends so that your friends can become friends of ours and we'll talk to you next time. Forget about it. You've been listening to Organized Crime and Punishment, a history and crime podcast. To learn more about what you heard today, find links to social media, and how to support the show, go to our website, a to zhistorypage.com. Become a friend of ours by sending us an email to crime at a to zhistorypage.com. All of this and more can be found in the show notes. We'll see you next time on Organized Crime and Punishment. Forget about it. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth. 
as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.